Take a network break. Help yourself to a virtual donut and join us for our weekly conversation on tech news. We've got multiple stories on Cisco, new gear from Nokia, automotive, Ethernet, and more. We're sponsored today by Palo Alto Networks. Your branch has changed. Your SD-WAN should, too. Join Palo Alto Networks to see how AI and ML are powering next-gen SD-WAN and SASE for the branch. SDX Central and Palo Alto Networks hosted an exclusive online event that shows you how next-gen SD-WAN and SASE can help you modernize and secure your branches. Go to sdxcentral.com to get the link to this free event and see the replay. Uh, and just a reminder that the first ever conference dedicated to network automation, AutoCon, is taking place November 13th and 14th in Denver, Colorado. You'll hear from network engineers making automation work in production and get insights from experts. You can also participate in working sessions to share your own experiences and ideas and ask questions. You can check out the agenda to see what's on tap for the two-day event and register at networkautomation.forum. That's networkautomation.forum. And I will be there uh, on the ground in Denver along with Ethan Banks. I will be there, so I hope to see you at AutoCon in November. Oh, you're escaping the house. There's a new one. I'm getting out of the house. And it's not Las Vegas, which is really nice. <laughs> Turning away from remote work. Heresy. <laughs> we'll actually <laughs> see people in person. I don't know how to behave anymore. I'll see what happens. Yeah. We'll see what sort of clothes you turn up in with your actually. Oh, wear oh right. I can't just wear adult pants. shoes. Yeah, yeah, you can't you gotta have uh, no more elasticated waists. It's gotta have to be a belt. And... <laughs> it's gonna have to be a belt, it's gonna have to be shoes, yeah. Mine maybe I should That's rethink it. this. Yeah. You might have to start, uh, you know, breaking your feet back in, getting used to it. That be... <laughs> I regret everything. <laughs> <laughs> you might if you don't start practicing. That's yeah, sure. That's right. No, I think the, the speaker lineup looks good, and uh, we're excited to be partnering on this conference. So it should be worth wearing a pair of shoes for a couple of days. Fair enough. All right. Uh, we got a lot of news, but before we do, just a quick uh, FU or follow-up. We got a couple of comments reminding us uh, of an update to a story about uh, Elon Musk from that new biography by Walter Isaacson. The original story that came out in the biography was that Elon Musk had turned off Starlink, uh, which was being used by the Ukrainian military during an operation. He had turned it off during the operation. Uh, apparently that wasn't true. Uh, so Walter Isaacson has issued a correction saying that there was a misunderstanding and that what actually happened was that Starlink service was geofenced so as not to provide service in Crimea uh, at that time. And the Ukrainian military apparently wasn't aware of that limitation. Um, and that limitation apparently thwarted a sea drone attack against Russian ships, but uh, it was not turned off during the operation by Musk. And that is still under question. Uh, I have since seen official statements from the Ukrainian government officials saying that the original statement was correct. That is, it was enabled and then was actively disabled by somebody as the operation was due to go. And it was actually disabled while the operation was in progress. So it's not clear. And if there's one thing we know about Elon Musk is that sometimes he says things that suit his way of thinking and mm -hmm. his interests. Mm -hmm. And it might have served him to say one thing at one time, and it might have served him to say another thing at another time. And the concept of truth is not something that Elon Musk tends to be well acquainted with. He will definitely serve his interests. Now, keep in mind that he is somebody who runs several businesses. And as the owner of those businesses, you would expect him to say whatever it is that does promote the businesses of the, that he, the companies that he is CEO of or owner of. But it is a truth that when Elon Musk says something, it may or may not be the truth, or it may be aspects of the truth, or it may be putting his companies in the best possible light according to the situation that he perceives them in doesn't really matter at the end of the day because uh, the the upshot is is that the Pentagon has now um, approached Starlink and made it clear that he is not going to make political decisions like that in the future and that he should shift such responsibility to the US government going forward as is the way of all military equipment that is if a if the Ukraine wants to take US assets and use them it has to abide by the rules that the US puts on them 
And that is what I think the future will be, if you're interested in that. That seems to be the way forward. Um, I don't think you'll see Elon Musk saying anything in public about where Starlink will be used or not. It'll come from the US government in the future. Yeah, I think it's also raised a broader issue for any military about having a private company operating a system being used by that military. Uh, there's going to be a lot to have to figure out. <laughs> what happens when Starlink starts to get used by other governments? Who's what? You know, like he wants to make money out of it. Sure. Right. You know? Right, so right, right. does the British government now trust Starlink to operate in the way that they think it does when they could just be the owner decides, I don't like Britain anymore, do you know? Yep, yep, there are issues. There are issues. Uh, as always, we appreciate uh, comments, corrections, clarifications. You can hit us up at packetpushers.net slash FU. Let's get into some news. Last week, we talked about Cisco, Nutanix teaming up on hyperconverged infrastructure to offer Cisco hardware managed by Nutanix. Now Cisco has announced the end of life on its HyperFlex data platform. Uh, going forward, Cisco is going to offer a hyperconverged product that runs on its UCS hardware with Nutanix software. The offering is going to be called Cisco Compute Hyperconverged with Nutanix. It just rolls off the tongue. Yeah, I think there's lots of different gears happening here. Obviously, I've said for many years that if you're going to partner with somebody, you should you know, put a ring on it. And I can't help but wonder why isn't Cisco just buying Nutanix? Nutanix is not particularly expensive. It's got a markup of around $8 billion today. They could probably buy it for 11 and then own it. Although it does have to be said that Nutanix is sitting on a significant pile of debt and it has a, a number of challenges. And you know, customers who've got Hyperflex, which is a reasonably small number. I believe it's around 4,000 of them. And Cisco has about 4 to 5% of the hyper-converged market compared to VMware at 44%, I believe the number is. Um, I was reading an article by Chris Miller over at Blocks and Files. He um, dug up the numbers there and he puts them in his article in that sort of thing. There's lots of problematic things here. If you're a Hyperflex customer, you don't own the product, Drew. I mean, how we talked about subscription licenses will have interesting outcomes into the future. So you can't go back to Cisco and say, I want a refund on any of this. Cisco's saying, no, no, we're not end-lifing the product. The licenses that you've paid for, you have to pay for them year on year until they expire. And if you've bought three-year licenses, they're bought and paid for, you've bought the right to use the product. So there's no refund. I noticed that kind of sandwiched in there into a, what is also kind of a very confusing end-of-life announcement. Yeah, I do wonder... Like, I think this will happen several times before it changes anything, but I do think it's an angle on subscription licensing that a lot of customers wouldn't have thought of. They would have just assumed that everything was fine and they would use it and they'd get the full value out of their product. But I think the Cisco is saying end of life happens today uh, and one year from today, the end of sale will happen and the complete uh, software development will end on end of support happens on the 25th. So there'll be no further maintenance from September 11th, 2025. So you've got two years of software maintenance continuing, which means effectively software maintenance is already done. They're just only going to release the bare minimum. The roadmap is done. There's no more feature development. It's all end of life. And the final day to use this is in 2029. But I think between the lines here, Cisco wants you out of the product within two years. They don't want to be dragging this along behind them, which is pretty abrupt for a hyperconverged. I think this is fairly intrinsic software, um, but they've laid down a fairly strong roadmap to get you off Hyperflex into Nutanix. And my understanding is that Cisco salespeople have been tasked uh, with very high sales goals and very rewarding sales goals to go out there and flip your Hyperflex into Nutanix ASAP. And if you are a customer, I think you will have to expect to repurchase all of your Cisco UCS hardware. My understanding is that all of the Nutanix certified hardware is new hardware. So Cisco will be out there, I believe, from reading the migration white paper saying, yeah, yeah, whatever you've got for Hyperflex, none of that's 
fit for purpose for Nutanix and you'll have to repurchase this all again. And we're here to provide you with, you know, a sales opportunity to to do that migration. Uh, my understanding is that customers who are on uh, Hyperflex M6 hardware should be able to swap out the Cisco software in favor of Nutanix or perhaps put a competing HCI software package on the hardware or run the M6 as a UCS server rather than an HCI mm -hmm. platform. However, if you're on M5, uh, you can maybe run it as a uh, UCS server, but the M5 is not going to support uh, Nutanix. So if mm -hmm. you're on M5, you're definitely more out of luck than M6. Yeah, I was hedging a little bit, so you've done a bit more research into that. I just walked away with the impression that mostly customers are going to be expected to buy new servers. I think certainly that's the way Cisco would pitch it. If I was a Cisco sales rep, that's what I'd be pitching. <laughs> I would imagine if a salesperson is, is showing up at your door, you're going to get that pitch. Yeah. No, you know, why not? Go for everything and then wind back according to the customer. So if you're a smart customer, I have to say, I never got the sense that Cisco fully committed to Hyperflex over the years. VBlock was the primary. So the at the time that they started building Hyperflex, Cisco had uh, the VBlock alliance with EMC and VMware when EMC owned VMware, and they were very big into that for a very long time. And then Hyperflex sort of came along as a reaction to VMware's hyperconverged, especially when HPE and Dell got into hyperconverged in a significant way, and then Dell owned VMware, and they were definitely getting a preferential status from VMware. Um, my guess is that Cisco sort of feels a degree of uncertainty here. It doesn't want Broadcom which will looks to like Broadcom will complete the acquisition of VMware by the end of October. And what does Cisco feel about Broadcom? Does Cisco feel that Broadcom is a good partner or does it want to have a diversity of supply and say, you've got to do something for us or we won't sell your product. And they're showing to Broadcom, you know, we are doing business with Nutanix. That's our chosen partner to migrate to because you aren't giving anything to us now. Is, is that something that, is that reasonable? Well, we'll talk about this further on with some uh, other Cisco announcement. Yes, I'm sure mm. Cisco's relationship with Broadcom can be fraught. Like Cisco obviously consumes a lot of Broadcom ASICs, but they're also competing in multiple markets and now HCI uh, with the VMware acquisition. Mm -hmm. I also feel like the HCI market uh, got a lot of attention early on as sort of a way to do cloud uh, on-premises, but never really took off. Now we're hearing more about, you know, enterprise frustration with the, the cost and uh, technical complexity of public cloud. And so maybe there's Cisco's anticipating more interest in, in private cloud and each and uh, hyperconverged. And so, uh, but their own product portfolio hasn't really taken off. So why not partner with Nutanix, which is, while not doing awesome, doing okay in the HCI market? Yeah, I, I don't, I mean, Nutanix has a, I can't remember the exact numbers, but it's not, a, it's really, there's only two players, there's VMware and Nutanix. Right. And, you know, Nutanix has its own hypervisor in the same way that VMware does and, you know, so on and so forth. I just really think that Cisco wants to have a foil against the VMware Broadcom here. It's sort of got a cooperative, competitive relationship with Broadcom around its ASICs. It does resell some of Broadcoms, but I think Cisco generally regards Broadcom's ASICs as competitive and, you know, doesn't like what's happening, particularly probably with Arista. And Arista's success using the Broadcom ASICs probably um, is a competitive situation they would like to change. So they would probably like to direct less of their business to Broadcom when it's it's hurting them elsewhere. It's just it's just one of those things. Like the executives that are in charge of this often have personal takes on all of this. It gets a bit weird. But I also think Cisco wants to control its customers. And this is a, a standard tactic for Cisco amongst other vendors. The vendor wants to control what the customer is buying and have as much control over the product as possible so that they can direct the customer down a particular path, which is beneficial for the vendor if they can get away with it. Something like the IBM business model. They want to say, you can buy these products and stay within our our family. And there's a lot of customers who choose Cisco to be a partner for that. 
And so if they can put together a global relationship with Nutanix, but again, I just can't work out why they didn't just go and buy Nutanix. Cisco needs to make a change. They've got very low growth. The share market's getting very antsy about the fact that Cisco's, you know, not getting any revenue growth. The signs of the sales boost that it got post-COVID is to do the backlog. They're concerned that it's not necessarily growing after that as the enterprise slows down. Somebody said to me that maybe Nutanix and Dell have a deal. There's some sort of thing that Dell has done in the past with Nutanix, and Dell might have a last right of refusal negotiated with Nutanix at some point. So if somebody puts up an offer to buy Nutanix, Dell gets to come in with a last offer. If that's true, I, don't, I mean, I don't know, but that's possible. You know, these sorts of things do happen and do play. I mean, Cisco does usually walk in on a Friday or a Thursday and make an offer for a company and say, you've got till nine o'clock Monday morning to accept it or we're out of here. Uh, maybe that doesn't work for Nutanix. Maybe they decided they can't do that sort of, you know, put a cutthroat offer on the table like that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Try and strong arm them into a deal in a hurry. Maybe Nutanix just looked at them and went, no. Uh, (laughs) And then, (laughs) you know, you never know what happens behind closed doors. So, but I think this is great. I think Cisco needed needed to realize that Hyperflex was never going to go anywhere. They're putting more lead behind fewer arrows. Maybe this is one of those. We'll see what they can do with Nutanix in the future and maybe get a competitive positioning against VMware to get a leverage over Broadcom VMware and get them to be a better partner, which may be the final outcome they want here, which is not a great news for v- for Nutanix, of course. All right, uh, moving on, we got a couple of stories about Cisco and Silicon. First, uh, Cisco has launched a new router, the 8608. It runs on Cisco's custom Silicon One ASIC. The 7RU box promises a total throughput of 12.8 terabits per second, has a modular design so you can uh, upgrade chassis components like the switch card, the route processors, and the modular port adapters. It uh, can support 32 400 giggy ports, 128 100 gig ports, or 192 ports of 10 or 25 gig. So this is a new chassis router. I guess it would be the right way. It's definitely targeting at the service provider, in my view. Uh, it's using Cisco Silicon One Q200 ASIC, which is the service provider ASIC, as I like to think of it, as opposed to the G series. The G series is the switching ASICs for the data center, and the Q200 ASICs are the ones um, being designed specifically for WAN switching. So they have lower throughput, 12 terabits per second, you know, uh, as in the case of the switch, but um, they have much greater capacity for memory and table lookups and flows and that sort of stuff. Mm-hmm. And so the ASIC, you know, the space on the on the ASIC die is allocated to different tasks, whereas a data switching ASIC has different allocations of resources, especially when it comes to L1, L2, L3 memory, uh, the amount of SRAM and so forth and TCAMs that are put on board. Um, this is, uh, they talk, talk about it being a redundant control and data plane via redundant route processes. Um, this is a centralized fabric Again, so Cisco likes to do centralized fabrics. It puts a, a bunch of uh, a compute card in the middle and then has a bunch of Dama um, line cards that sit around basically looking more like transceiver models. Um, the centralized architecture is cheaper and easier to deliver compared to distributed architectures, which are generally faster, scalable, and more flexible. So Cisco's gone down the standard route that it does. It's gone for the easier and the cheaper solution using centralized devices, but at the loss of scale. But that's okay when you've got an ASIC, at, you know, when you can produce an ASIC that has all the performance that you need in a centralized architecture, maybe that's not too bad. Um, I imagine that over time that a distributed architecture will return um, once we find the limits of, you know, making ASICs at this sort of speed, or if you want to maximize the performance of these ASICs, you know, without having to respin them constantly. Uh-huh. Uh, so yeah, it's worth a read. Uh, I particularly note that the architecture white paper is excellent. The people on the XR Docs team, 
because uh, they have a special website that's not on the Cisco website, xrdocs.io. Again, they've produced an excellent white paper here, which really explains how the architecture works. And I was really able to dig it. Awesome. That link is in the show notes. And we do love good documentation. Sticking with Cisco and sticking with Silicon, uh, this is a story that came out earlier this summer. We, we missed it. But uh, Cisco announced two new versions of its Silicon One ASIC for data center switches. Uh, there's the G200 model, which Cisco says provides 51.2 terabits per second of total throughput. Uh, the company also announced the G202, which provides 25.6 terabits per second. Uh, as of June 2023, Cisco said it was sampling the chip to customers. Cisco's positioning the Silicon for Ethernet-based AIML clusters and for web-scale spine deployments. Uh, to my mind, that puts these chips in. In direct competition with Broadcom's Jericho 3AI and Tomahawk A6 that are also targeting Ethernet fabrics, supporting AI workloads. And of course, it's also competing with uh, uh, NVIDIA's InfiniBand. Yeah. So apologies for not noticing this in June when it was announced. I'm uh, not sure why. I know I've been having some problems with Cisco's RSS feeds, but whatever. Um, this is the G200. Uh, it's five nanometer, I noticed. So it's very yep. modern ASIC made on very modern processors. It's got 512, 112 gigabits per second SIRDESs. And they claim it's going to be a programmable deterministic low latency with advanced visibility control. So that's obviously web scale, but I think particularly AI networking related. Uh, we have lots of people in the AI circles saying we're not having problems with GPUs now. The NVIDIA seems to have sort of addressed most of the uh, performance problems around the GPUs. Uh, what they're now finding is that a really good network is the, be is the best way to make AI processing faster, which is interesting. I've just been uh, sitting in a forum watching a bunch of really smart people talking about this and the things that they've done in the networking architecture to really accelerate the AI throughput mm -hmm. when they get the networking correct. And I think the networking players are leaning into this quite heavily by saying the problems in the ASIC. I'm not resiling from my position that I think the DPUs are the ultimately where the best performance solution will be found, but I also think the market's not ready to do DPUs yet. There seems to be no rapid take-up of DPUs. I know AMD is not talking about Passando anymore. I don't know if you've noticed. I haven't seen a single press release. I went and checked their RSS feed and Pansando has basically disappeared without a trace. NVIDIA's... Uh, came out strong talking about its blue field. But again, um, they've stopped talking about that in public for the last few months. I think mainly those people will be focused around, they've probably got enough selling to the to the existing AI market. They don't really need to. Uh, so yeah, um, congratulations to Cisco for getting it. And I believe, if I remember rightly, this chip's coming in approximately on time because when Cisco announced the Silicon One, there was some question about whether they could produce these chips, you know, design them, get them spun, get them manufactured. They're a little bit behind Broadcom with its Jericho 3, but not enough to make any difference. You know, you could argue that announcing it in June was, you know, weeks difference and so forth, Then they're all sampling it. But this isn't for enterprises, in my view. This switch today, um, this ASIC today will be used in switches, which will go to Facebook, Azure, and other specialist cloud companies that have large-scale AI. I don't think enterprises will be much bothered with it for now. Yeah, I think it's definitely targeted at AIML workloads. They've included uh, special features like internal load balancing to minimize congestion and a packet spraying capability so you can maximize uh, all of the links and all of the paths, uh, both of which are necessary to make Ethernet better suited for AI workloads where the goal is to minimize tail latency, meaning you don't want GPU sitting idle uh, waiting for that uh, last bit of a flow to come in so they can process a workload and then move it on. Uh, it's also using a custom P4 programmable parallel pocket processor, which Cisco says can perform more than 435 billion lookups per second. Uh, interesting to see P4 getting some life here inside Cisco. Uh, and I, I think it also looks like you can bring your own network OS because it's supporting the switch abstraction interface or SI. Uh, so if you've got uh, an OS of choice you want to put on there, mm -hmm. Cisco's, uh, the silicon's ready for it. Yeah, that will be 
the thing about Sire is it's usually a subset of the possible features. So the devil there will be in the details. Is this how many features they are exposing via SAI, or is it just some of them? And we'll have to wait. But then again, the sort of customers that are going to buy this ASIC, a la Microsoft, will be keen on having SAI support. Yes. That's right. They want to use Sonic and they want to use Sai. So, you know, again, devil's in the detail. We'll have to wait and see how much of this is enabled on day one. We'll see how it works out because these things are all very complex and very hard. Uh, it also makes more sense to me now why Cisco is a founding member of the Ultra Ethernet Consortium. That's a new industry group we talked about. They're looking to set new standards to make Ethernet more suitable for AIML. So now, yes, now it makes sense why Cisco is there. Uh, the next platform has a very detailed breakdown of the ASIC. Uh, we'll have the link in the show notes if you want to check it out. And for me, it's interesting to see Cisco. It looks like they're putting some serious energy into market where they are not the incumbent. And in fact, they are, frankly, a tiny little flea compared to Broadcom on the silicon front. So they're, they're putting some muscle here. I think Cisco has a problem here in that once you design an ASIC, you need to make it at scale, right? You've spent all that, you know, your hundreds of millions of dollars to design mm -hmm. an ASIC, go through the production process, iron out all the thing. Everything after that, the chip's basically, you know, not exactly, but it's the cost of sand to make another one, right? So what you need to do to make those really profitable is to sell them to as many customers yes. as possible. So it's a scale business. And Cisco says, well, you know, who are the companies buying this ASIC at scale? And the answer is, of course, the cloud providers. And so you've got to provide a chipset that they want to buy. Um, once they've gone through the process of building it, you know, that's where the market is. And again, I don't see a lot of enterprises. Second, certainly second tier cloud providers will do it. Uh, of course, because it's a 51.2 terabit per second chipset, um, it's going to save you switches. Like what I mean by that is where before you would have had the two spines and four leaves to have the same uh, sort of forwarding performance. Now you can just collapse those six switches into one ASIC. And, and, you know, use two of them to replace six. And so you get power savings and performance benefits from it and all that sort of stuff. But that's not new. That's something that's been happening with ASIC for the last 10 years Have they've been able to increase the clock rate as they get larger and larger and more yeah. performance. But it's just nice to see Cisco uh, competing in, in a market where they aren't uh, obviously the, the incumbent. So it's a little bit of that old Cisco fight and energy. Well, they're not dominant. Cisco's culture is always, we only in markets that we're the number one or number two. If not, we get out. Yeah, and they are not <laughs> in this one particularly. There are business reasons as to why they need to compete because anything that they sell is worth doing. I think. All right, a quick break to tell about our sponsor, Palo Alto Networks. Your branches change, your SD-WAN should too. You can join Palo Alto Networks to see how AI and ML are powering next-gen SD-WAN and SASE for the branch. As businesses focus on driving the next growth phase, branch transformation has become a key priority for IT leaders. Critical industries like finance, retail, healthcare, and manufacturing rely on a network of branch offices to serve their customers. The newly established trends of hybrid work, digital-first customers, and accelerated cloud adoption are forcing organizations to rethink their branch IT strategy. SDX Central and Palo Alto Networks hosted an exclusive online event this May, and you can get the full replay of the event to see how NextGen, SD-WAN, and SASE can help you modernize and secure your branches. Go to sdxcentral.com to get the link to sign up for the replay or get the link in the show notes for Network Break episode 447. That's today's episode. All right, sticking with Silicon, but moving away from Cisco, Nokia has announced new routers in its SXR platform that also boast custom Silicon. The 7730 family comes in a variety of form factors and supports 1 to 400 gigabit Ethernet, but the common thread among all of them is Nokia's FPCX Network Processing Unit, a fully programmable processor. Funny how they get announced at the same time as their competitor's product, isn't it? Oh, interesting, yes. Funny, funny peculiar, don't you, don't you find? Um <laughs> Just just an observation aside, I think it's interesting that I talked before about how custom silicon 
um, has an advantage when these vendors make it and they can tailor the silicon for a specific use case. And probably the signal here is that if this use case was significantly large, then Broadcom would be making a, an asset for it. They certainly have the capabilities. But for now, Nokia, Cisco, Juniper, and others are still making their custom silicon for their high-end service provider routers, which makes me believe that the actual number of chips for that market Remember what I said about scale and ASICs uh, is probably limited, and it allows these companies to differentiate by making the ASICs optimized for a specific use case. Uh, another thing I noticed about the 7730 is that it's running SR Linux. Uh, we talked about SR Linux. Nokia has been a sponsor, full disclosure here, several times, and we've done several shows about SR Linux and the ecosystem around it. And I remember when they first came out, they said, we hope to get this into more products. And it looks like SR Linux has been successful. And it's now moving into the service provider class router, which means it's moving from the data center to a wider audience, suggesting that Nokia is positioning it for its future. And probably that customers aren't saying no to it either. They've probably gone out and tested them and said, would you use SR Linux on this router? And if the answer wasn't no, they've probably gone ahead with it, if that makes sense. Right. I think it's a, a sign of confidence in SR Linux as a network operating platform that uh, they would roll it out to service providers and service providers would accept it because service providers are generally very cautious about uh, software they're using in their networks. And I think it gets back to this idea that you want Linux underneath, you get all of the Linux stuff that you like, uh, and then you get to run containers and you can put apps inside those containers and whatever. Customers get a lot more choices and the vendor can say yes more often, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. And that, you know, containers on a router inside of a Linux, and but Nokia can say, but it's using our routing stack, which is known and trusted. We brought it across from SROS and so on and so forth. And I think it's a it's a good pitch. And they're now they're producing the hardware that comes with it. It's got lots of ports and sockets and all that sort of stuff. So we've got a bunch of links if you want to know more about that router, but it's in that sort of WAN edge, what I call underlay routers. Actually, what I mean by that is they work for telcos who create high density underlay networks in the at the edge of the DWDM. Good old underlay. Still need it. Yeah. Yeah. Or native networking or heritage networking. I don't know. <laughs> Whatever you want to call it. I'll get in trouble if I call uh, normal networking heritage networking, I'm sure. Heritage is nicer than old-fashioned, so I'd, I'd rather have that. But well, It's definitely not old-fashioned. It's just not – it used to be that, like, that was the hero. You know, the service providers were doing the most interesting, you know. Yep. You know, hero network is the biggest and <laughs> speeds and large routers, and now it's sort of like, yeah, just make those packets go from here to here. Have a nice day. Thanks. And I want it cheaper. Yeah, I want it cheaper. Yeah. All right, uh, moving on. Intel announced the Thunderbolt 5. This is the latest generation of a connector for connecting computers to monitors, docks, and storage systems. Intel says the Thunderbolt 5 delivers up to 80 gigabits per second of bi-directional bandwidth and up to 120 gigabits per second using an optional bandwidth boost. Intel says this will be that Thunderbolt 5 will be broadly compatible with previous Thunderbolt versions and USB. Ah, uh, you just get the feeling that uh, the devil's in the details. Broadly compatible. Broadly compatible <laughs> did uh, twig my radar like, wait, 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 wait. <laughs> this is just an interesting announcement. I'm still of the opinion that Thunderbolt is a networking technology and that it's a lot of people just don't think about it as a networking technology, right? I remember when um, Ethernet was a way to connect four or five computers together and that was a big deal. And you can now do the same thing with Thunderbolt via Thunderbolt hubs and some people are doing that and they're using it to share devices, obviously very big in uh, filmmaking and audiovisual and lots of things like that. Or if you've got huge amounts of storage, um, Thunderbolt is the way to create a personal, almost a personal area network where you can connect, but at 120 gigabits per second, that's a really fast network, but it's using PCIe networking, right? It's not ethernet that's in there. You can run ethernet over 
PCIe on the Thunderbolt standard, and it'll run at 100 gigabits per second, by the way. But um, people don't think about it like that. And um, if there's one thing that I've noticed over the years, Drew, and you've been in networking for decades as well, things like this can suddenly turn around and turn into something. Because, you know, RFC 1925, Rule 11, which says every old idea will be proposed again with a different name and a different presentation, regardless of whether it worked or not. And I just think like, ah, you know, one day somebody's going to say, why aren't we using Thunderbolt to connect to top of rack switches? And I'm sure there's a good reason, but, you know, just one of those things. Thunderbolt over Ethernet. (laughs) Well, you know, I don't know. I don't think it'd be that. I think it's more like, um, like the maximum distance for the cable is two meters, I think. Um, Intel's enforcing a whole bunch of really interesting features here. They're saying you actually will have to apply for a certification. So if you're going to use the Thunderbolt 5 name, you will have to be applied to be approved and to use a service mark on the device. It uses the same connector as USB-C, but inside it is significantly different. Of course, there's um, chips inside there and a whole bunch of things. I've got a link to the uh, press release. Intel's published the uh, PDF, which talks about all the different things. And it's going to be interesting to see how that works out because I think Thunderbolt 5 allows vendors to start taking out USB ports. So just put Thunderbolt 5 in and then sell them a dongle. And in the dongle will be all the other things, you know, USBs, HDMIs, all that. You don't won't see them inside the laptop going forward is my instinct. In general, I think you're right that uh, this industry loves the idea that there are six very well-established ways to do something. Why not a seventh? So who knows where Thunderbolt (laughs) will go? Yeah. Well, it's already being used for lots of things. People were doing external um, graphics processes and external hard drives and things like that. Really, really high performance. And um, of course, Intel is very keen to see its leadership in the desktop be maintained. And it is the creator of the Thunderbolt 5 standard. And now that Apple has moved to USB-C and is starting to, you know, parts of its lightning standard is now built into the Thunderbolt standard. I suspect we'll see, in uh, you know, Apple just rolling into the Thunderbolt standard going forward. Uh, more ASIC news. Uh, Marvell recently announced new Ethernet ASICs for cars that aim to build automotive control systems, uh, sort of like a data center with switches at the quote unquote edge connecting to an aggregation layer. And the goal of this design is to cut down on cabling, which can reduce costs and also car weight, uh, which can be a significant issue for electrical vehicles. This is sort of a spin on something we talked about, I think, six months to a year ago, Drew, where we talked about how much cabling there was in a car. And they were saying like miles. There was an article that put out that like you got multiple miles of cabling in every car now or multiple kilometers of cabling and it turns out that each domain in the car had its own cabling and so they came along with single pair ethernet which is the idea that you can run 10 or 100 or a gigabit ethernet over a single pair instead of using multiple pairs and that reduced the cabling a lot so that you didn't have to have multiple cores inside of a cable but really they've worked out that you know if you just build a network and put an ethernet switch in there that would be a lot easier uh, this article uh, shows some diagrams suggesting you how that works out um, and they talk about the standards that are related to this i hadn't actually tracked in on a lot of this but there is the IEEE 802.3CG10-T1L, which is 10 megabits per second over a single pair with a kilometer reach, True, huh. which I think is super interesting for a lot of use cases. If um, This whole thing has got me thinking about, does this turn into IoT? Does this transform from the car? Like once you're making an ASIC for a car, can you turn in this into an industrial Ethernet switch that does single pair and sensors and you know for that environment where you need a physical cable why am i running cat six for 100 meters and switches in you know in environmental why am i not just using this 10 meg if all i'm doing if that's enough for what i need yeah it could be i hadn't thought about that based on the the blog it makes me think what they're talking about is there are six sort of 
physical zones that uh, control different aspects of the car. So control systems, security systems, entertainment systems are all separate, essentially physical networks. The idea here seems to be like build one single network and then essentially use VLANs to separate all that out. Is that is that <laughs> what we're talking about? Yeah, I think so. I think that's it. Or they'll use some other security, term, some sort of tag, security tag. Right, right. It won't be a VLAN per se, but just conceptually, that's the idea. Uh, more likely, they just won't bother until somebody catches them in a vulnerability and then they'll patch it later. You know, well, that's of- <laughs> exactly what came to mind. I mean, aside from the ASIC perspective, this blog is really eye-opening about, frankly, the reliance that modern automobiles have on software and processors, uh, which of course gets my tinfoil hat spinning about data collection and security vulnerabilities, but that's for another episode. Well, there was a kerfuffle this week that cars are a privacy nightmare because apparently all that data that's coming off cars about where you are and what you did and mm-hmm. cameras in the vehicles. Um, there was a story a while ago that apparently people are using driverless cars in San Francisco for conjugal meetings, <laughs> casual conjugal events, but it's being recorded on camera and apparently they don't really mind. Oh boy. Uh, so who knows, you know, there's, so at that, that's one extreme. The other extreme of course, is that, uh, you know, people who have cars can track where your salespeople are going or where your CEO is going. So that's the flip. There's a corporate angle to that. If you want to take it, I just think once Marvell is making these types of things, they can modify them and start adapting them for other purposes again remember i talked about scale in ASICs is the is the key once you've got a product you right. want to make it and sell more and more of it because you've already done the design you've done the process which takes years to get through the process and work it out i suspect that this ASIC will be forked into multiple different directions and we'll see new methods for connectivity it won't just be 5g in the warehouse or wi-fi in the warehouse or even you know traditional ethernet you know 100 gig 1 gig 10 gig 25 gig ethernet over a fiber optic or a whatever, I, this might be a viable alternative for these use cases where this is the way you want to go. Yeah, the, the blog is really interesting. Uh, so check it out. There's a link in the show notes. And if you love cars and you love networking, maybe there's a career opportunity here too. Feels to me like it's all a bit special, <laughs> like it's a bit specialized. Yeah, very specialized. I don't think you'll be in there configuring cars for a living. <laughs> you never know. <laughs> <laughs> Hi, I'm here to configure the network in your car. <laughs> you'll be you'll be the the networking you know, the network engineer in a mechanic shop. Is that the idea? That's what I did. Yeah, you pull into the. I'm bay, here to upgrade the firewall. You get the oil change, and you have to have the the uh, the configuration updated. <laughs> the, the firewall rules are up. <laughs> <laughs> you never know. It puts a new definition on custom cars, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right, a couple more stories before we wrap. Uh, Afrinic, this is the regional internet registry for the continent of Africa, has been put into receivership. Uh, This is frankly a very complicated story, Greg, but you uh, dropped it in here uh, at the end. I didn't want to make a big deal of this. We've raised this a few times. Uh, A year or so that Afrinic had been hijacked by a group of people with vested interests. And the reason I, I wanted to point it towards people is I want you to be aware that organizations can hijack societies like society like Ayana, like all those types of things by paying to put people into the elections like it's not dissimilar to what happens in the itf when vendors decide to send a whole bunch of their paid employees onto the itf working groups and to make sure that the working groups are considering their interests if you take that to its extreme they actually then take over the governing bodies and then align the organization to a particular goal or particular outcome and in this case it appears as best as i could tell that afrinic was taken over by a company called cloud innovations uh and when they did so they monetized that event they, they put up a whole lot of people for election, ran a campaign, which was paid for and supported by extensive funding. Uh, and then they eventually monetized it by transferring 6.4 million IPv4 addresses 
um, to a company legally, and it appears to have been legal and all across because their people were on the board who approved the transfer. Today, that's, uh, those addresses are worth something like around $300 million. They've gone on now to run a campaign across the world saying, we want to lease IP addresses. We know that that's not allowed under the existing rules. People that can only be allocated them or they can buy them and transfer. We want the rest of the world to allow us to lease them to somebody for a period of time and then they come back to us so that we can lease them again, which is an interesting business model, but probably not one that is going to be supported by the NICs worldwide. But in this case, somebody has now managed to take AfriNIC into receivership, possibly to prevent further abuses. The article's quite unclear. It's very long, isn't it, Drew? It's long. There's a lot of complexity. There's a lot of uh, innuendo mm. and insinuation. So yeah, there's a lot to untangle. One, yes, the, the big thing is that there are significant organizations that have an impact on the internet that uh, most of us just don't have to think about, uh, but these bodies do still affect things. And so it, it, they, we do need to keep an eye on what's happening. Yeah. So um, if you're interested in that sort of thing, the article's from mybroadband.co.za, which is uh, South African press who are covering this and covering it quite closely. They have a number of articles there, uh, including from Ayana and so forth, trying to work out how to get out of this. And if you want to read the gory details, I suggest that you do. Um, and if you've got an interest in how the NICs work and so forth, it's very eye-opening into you know, a fairly arcane part of the internet that no people are looking at. Um, right. uh, I did cover recently that they attempted to do the same thing at APNIC. Uh, they attempted to to do a takeover of the APNIC governing body, and they tried to put a number of their candidates up for election for the Asia-Pacific NIC, and that was eventually um, stopped. Um, so, so far it's been limited, but maybe the next move is to take AfriNIC into receivership, and I'm not 100% sure if it was done by the people who took it over as a way of preventing anything from stopping them from making money, or whether it was taken to stop the other company from, you know, damages. Uh, my understanding, it was the uh, a, a court in Mauritius, uh, a court in Mauritius put them into receivership, but based on some lawsuits that were going on. Well, the Afrinic was registered in Mauritius, and right. um, so it, had, you know, any court would have to be there. But it's very African. The, you know, everybody's in there to try and make money, get influence, and exploit it to some extent. But you know, everything's a bit shambolic and so forth. And I really wish the best for Africa. I think it's a shame that this is happening, and, and the Africans should be treated better. All right. Uh, our last story for today is another tidbit from the Walter Isaacson bio of Elon Musk. Uh, apparently, at one point, uh, Elon was physically moving servers out of a data center. Yeah. If you haven't read this already, if you're not on the internet, this is a CNBC article. Um, basically, the story is that uh, Elon decided that moving servers couldn't be that hard. And the story goes that he actually said decided to just go into the data center and take a look on a Saturday night or a Friday night or something after everybody had gone home. And he just looked at them and he said, well, these can't be too easy to move. We can just jump in, lift the floor, unplug them and put them in the back of a truck. That's what they did. <laughs> so literally decided to, you know, apparently he lifted the floor with a knife instead of a floor sucker right. and then unplugged them and then checked the site to see if it was still working. He said, oh, well, they mustn't be very important. We'll just uh, turn them all off now and then we'll hire a truck tonight, get it in, in tomorrow morning. They hired a couple of randos off the street, stuffed them in the back of a truck and then drove off to the other location and put them down. I'd like to make jokes about this, but I've experienced both sides of this personally. You can just do a YOLO, you know, like YOLO, whatever. <laughs> and it's a good learning experience because you just say, oh, we'll just do it and then fix the bugs later, mm -hmm. you know, work around it. And it works really well until it doesn't because when you're doing the migration, if a server breaks in transit, how do you recover it? <laughs> uh, when you get there, what's the IP addresses? At what ports are you going to, you know, everybody's got to react to the situation. Um, I've had that work, but I've also had it go wrong as well. Right. But I've also had the extreme frustration in sitting around in dozens of meetings, arguing with people about how to move servers and everybody's overblowing the risks and making it sound like it's an apocalyptic event. Right. 
That said, it did cause a massive outage. Not immediately, though. It turned out that these servers were critical. They were dynamically load balanced and part of the, an overall structure. And it wasn't obvious what they were doing, but it turns out that, remember there was a big blow up when they were doing some session and people were, there was a big um, kerfuffle about, we've got a special one-off event and we're going to do a, a space and somebody came along and it blew up five uh -huh. minutes in. That uh -huh. was because these servers weren't connected anymore. Uh -huh. There wasn't enough capacity to handle the load. And lo and behold, that was the problem. So apparently, so Elon comes away from this looking like a bit of a, looking foolish. You know, if it had worked, he would have been a hero and it would have been awesome. And people would have been creating eulogies to his ability to be a technologist, but it didn't. And uh, yeah, so it's an interesting story. It's worth reading because it sort of shows, you know, the CEO who thinks it can't be that hard and just goes for it. Whatever. I, I think there's an appetite for people. I mean, I have it too for someone who just is sort of like, damn this red tape, we're cutting through it. We're just going to do it because we're going to do it and we're going to get it done. And and that, that can be exciting and sometimes necessary, but there is a reason processes are in place uh, as uh, they later found out. So, yeah. Yeah. The servers are all full of personally identifiable data as well. So personal information and you're not technically, you're supposed to not allow that out of a restricted facility. Their way, his way of addressing it was to put a load of uh, Apple AirTags. He went down to the Apple shop and bought $5,000 worth of AirTags and put them inside the trucks just so they could track them. Uh -huh. That was his control for personal information. Right. Apparently the truck sat outside the data center at night waiting for the next day and things like that. Just just great. Right. Just great. Read it and, and just think about what you would do in that situation. All right. Yeah, we have the link in the show notes that does uh, wrap up our show. Greg, where can folks get more from you? I'm increasingly trying to be on LinkedIn. So come and you know, follow me there or uh, try and get in contact with me there. I'm still on Twitter for the odd occasion, uh, but I'd look forward to discussing more things on LinkedIn with you. Uh, I'm Drew Conry-Murray. I'm on Twitter at Drew underscore CM. I am also migrating over to Blue Sky. I'm there. Uh, if you're interested, uh, Drew CM on the social uh, Blue Sky. And of course, blogging at packapurchase.net. Uh, thank you for joining us for this episode of Network Break. If you like the show, uh, give us a recommendation on Apple Podcasts or uh, share it with a friend. We always appreciate it. As always, thanks for listening.